Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We're talking opening round AUDL playoffs after three big divisional round matchups in the East, Central, and West this past weekend. DC getting the 23-18 win over Philadelphia with a season-low eight turnovers at home. DC defense also taking advantage of five of eight break opportunities while Philly converting on only one of five. Johnny Malks, Jock Nissen, Christian Boxley, and Tyler Monroe for DC combining for 22 scores and just three turnovers on the night as a quartet. In the Central Division, Minnesota getting the 20-18 win, also at home, committing just 11 turnovers. Their defense going a tidy 7-10 of 10 on their defensive opportunities, despite just generating four takeaways as a team. Andrew Roy going 42-43, of 43, three assists, over 400 total yards for the second-year handler. Just another great playoff performance from him. And in the West... Salt Lake outpunching San Diego in the win 19 to 16 in a game of runs. The shred defense once again getting blocks by the dozens, it feels like. They register 17 blocks on the night against the two-time reigning divisional champion Growlers. Jordan Kerr finishes with a game high in both yards and assists, going for over 400 total yards. Five assists was 19-21 on throws and undeterred by a broken nose on a big hustle play that led to an eventual Salt Lake score. There wasn't any lead changes, I believe, in any of the three games, and yet these are some really exciting matchups in the first round of the 2022 playoffs. So there was one there was change, one. but it happened right. It was right at the start of the San Diego Salt Lake. That's game. right. When San Diego That's got right. off to that two nothing lead, but then well, very quickly it shifted to what a six two lead for Salt Lake. I think yeah. they had scored six unanswered. Yes. Um, the Growlers like they didn't convert another O line hold until like the second quarter. That was it. Was a weird game to watch, but yeah, tons of excitement despite you know on paper not so many lead changes, but. Uh, yeah, it was a very solid first weekend. I'm, I'm excited for what the stage has set going forward as well. We'll start in the East Division again with the Breeze prevailing at home 23-18. to I think for the first half, this was easily the most exciting game of the weekend. The Hotbirds came out indeed hot on the road. Big, ja- big game James Pollard, excuse me, going off as a thrower in the first half he just felt like he was connecting on every deep shot and dc's defense did not have an answer he was just lacing throws into space for phoenix receivers sean mott had a big sky in the first half and despite dc having an early lead as rowan mcdonald kind of tipped off in this week's tuesday toss to evan lepler it still felt like Phoenix were winning that game early just with their big plays with the momentum with the way in which they were just coming out so strong in a road environment with a big DC home crowd. That was a really impressive Philly first half. Definitely. It was, yeah, James Pollard was on absolute fire. I do not know how every single one of his hooks were just absolute dimes, but yeah, the Phoenix, they have this really exciting big play offense 
And when it's working, they look unstoppable. And I feel like the past two games or the first two games against DC, I sort of expected them to drop off at a certain point because it's generally not a super sustainable play style, but they were still able to keep those games extremely close. The problem was this time, even though I think they, so they only finished with 14 turnovers, which I think was their fewest of any of the Philly DC games. DC just didn't really give them a chance in that second half. DC just really tightened up offensively. They had their strongest offensive game of any of the Philly DC games this year. And it's just tough to maintain pace with a team that's operating at that level of efficiency. And while Philly was still very exciting and still punchy throughout the game, it it sort of turned, you know, I would say in the maybe the end of the second quarter, start of the third quarter, where you saw a few of those hucks that weren't being completed by Philly anymore. And then all of a sudden, DC was just maintaining their consistency that they'd been doing all game, where Philly just had to play catch up from that point on. It's that edge that we've been talking about all season, right? That kind of attention to detail, specifically when it comes to turnovers and defensive break opportunities, and what you and I were both kind of worried about with Philly going into this matchup. And as I tipped off at the top of this show, Philly just one of five on defensive breaks, DC five of eight. And like you say, it started at the end of that second quarter when DC got two quick breaks in a row and then kind of had a padding. And from there, you could feel Philly still wanting to punch with DC, but all of a sudden, here's a missed throw at the back of the end zone to Greg Martin. Here's a missed throw out the back of the end zone to Brandon Pastor, both making excellent plays on this, but just not able to stay in bounds. And then DC goes the other way and just converts it. And it there's no real momentum shifting play that happened in this game, but you could just feel DC's defense after they made some adjustments, after they got a little bit more help defense deep, they were just leeching this Philly team in the entire second half. It was it was that end of second quarter. I'm looking back through the the play log right now, and it was it was eight to nine, and Philly had the disc back to try and tie it up and make it nine nine. They'd basically been trading throughout the game, even with DC did make a couple errors early on, but Philly wasn't really able to capitalize. But when it was eight nine, that was the first Pollard Huck throwaway. I think he was looking for Alex Thorne or something, and he it was a miscommunication. Like Thorne stopped his cut. Pollard thought he would keep going. And then, yeah, DC punches that one in, and then the very next point, Pollard tries a swing pass, and I think it was Bloodgood that uh, rose up for the block, and again, DC scores. So it, it it was very much like living and dying by James Pollard, and it's hard for any one player to keep up the level of efficiency while maintaining that aggressiveness that Pollard plays with. So I, it did feel like only a matter of time before Philly maybe fell a little bit flat and fell behind DC, but I also felt the same way in the previous meetings with these two teams, I thought this would be like the typical game script for these games where Philly can stick with DC for a half. And then ultimately DC's efficiency just proves too much. But I think that this was like much more of a very good game for DC rather than like a disappointing game for Philly. I think DC went out and won this game a lot more than Philly lost it. Oh, absolutely. And you could just see that with what the turnovers were. Like I say, they would have been highlight top 10 style plays had Greg Martin got that one disc that floated out the back of the uh, the right end of the broadcast. And then if Pastor 
would have stayed in. It would have kept his foot down when he was trailing out the back of the end zone on another Pollard hook that couldn't quite connect. And it was, it was just one of those things where it felt like the inevitable had happened midway through the second half. And you could kind of feel Philly almost feeling that too, where they had this terrific home or excuse me, this terrific away crowd of Philly fans that traveled to DC. They took over an entire section in the Carlini field stands and every single time Philly was connecting on their deep balls early they just had this surge behind them on the road and it's such a good I think uh supporting wind when you're in that road environment to just like lean into that kind of heel mentality and be able to just punch with the the favored home team and then as soon as they stopped having those kind of plays it just became DC's game you know, as soon as it kind of like strips away some of that sexiness of the big play, the deep ball, the long ball, that just plays so thoroughly into what the Breeze want to do, which is just work you in the corners, work you in the interstitial spaces, work it between five to six players on offense. You're never sure who's really going to take over a given drive for D.C., they had friggin' David Cranston out there in the fourth quarter basically acting as an offensive closer. He's played something like 5% of his total career points up to this point on offense. You know, it's just anyone who kind of gets a touch on this DC offense right now is just, it feels like they're prone to excel. Like I was talking about with the Malks, Nissen, Boxley, Monroe Quartet. It's not as if Rowan McDonald had a bad game. He just committed the most turnovers of anybody on DC and was kind of flustered at times from the defense of Paul Owens. But that quartet of like downfield kind of hybrid initiators that the Breeze have, that is so formidable. And I think were they not to face New York in this East Division championship round, they would almost be favored against any other team in this divisional championship round coming up next weekend. Just, just for how how many ways they can problem solve a defense with their offensive attack. There's just, it feels like Philly was like you say, they didn't lose this game. They played well. They just, how how do you kind of stop this DC weave at a certain point? They just, they, they overwhelm you. You, you even read about from Paul Owens in the Tuesday toss. Rowan just ran Paul more than he'd ever been run all season. And that's kind of, descriptive of everyone on dc's offense they just rung you down one through seven it is and that's a problem when dc is only turning it over eight times in the game like there there is a very it's a very small chance of actually coming up with a system that is better than what dc has and it's especially good like dc is so good at playing with the lead like all this system offense they run it's like designed to protect the lead yeah, exactly. They're they're running out the clock. It's these long possessions, but they're they're efficient and very effective. But they're not like yeah, they're not taking shots. They're not really giving their opponents a chance to come back in that way. Like Philly had five break opportunities the entire game. Of course, that it, this was their most efficient game of any against Philly. But it, it just goes to show when DC is playing at this level, I think they're they're one of the toughest teams I would say to come back against. So it. it gets me excited for the game against New York. Like if they can get off to a first, like first quarter quick lead just by a couple goals. I I trust DC a lot to like maintain their level of efficiency throughout the game. 
just to extend the football metaphor a bit more, their defense also kind of plays in like a sack happy blitz the quarterback style where when they get a turnover, they're looking to engage. And you could see that against Philly when Musa Ja got that big block on Greg Martin on a huck attempt in the third quarter, maybe it's beginning of fourth, somewhere in the second half. Uh, and then on the ensuing counterattack, AJ Merriman just rips a bomb into space for Luke Rafis. And it that. just kind of feels like a, a defense that's so triggered off of the big play that when they make one, you can basically feel the next one coming right after it. Yeah, but I, I would also say like more more so than a lot of other D-lines, they're not necessarily looking for those smash plays off the turn. Like no, they're very capable no. of running things through David Bloodgood. And like they have that that core yes. of throwers on the D-line that are are very efficient as well. Like as a whole, this team doesn't really take a lot of deep shots, which I could see being more of a problem against a team like New York that almost has a similar Philly style aggressiveness at times, like if they need to, but also more than capable of playing more small ball, uh, you know, efficient, just like continuation looks that DC does. So I, I don't know. This was like, it's the most extreme clash of styles between Philly and DC. It was fun to watch for sure. Yeah, I think that's what made the first half so engaging was sort of the the big play. It, it felt very unpercussive, the way in which there was that balance, right? There was like the big Phoenix deep bombs from Pollard to whomever downfield. And then on DC, it's just them kind of working it up, working it up, working it up, punching it in, working it up, yeah. working it up, working it up, punching it in. Like it was so like expanding and contracting depending on which team was going on the field with their offense. <laughs> It'd be really cool to watch that game as like a like a first time ultimate viewer just to see how different really good offenses can look. Well, and you would absolutely have bought into being a Philly fan had you just tuned in and started watching them in the first half. And you would have just, I think, slowly been convinced otherwise watching a Breeze team just not make mistakes in the second half. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the DC play style overall more boring, but you know, there's a certain appreciation for it still. Yeah. And not to put too fine of a point on it, but do you think that this comes down a little bit to simple playoff experience versus a lack thereof in DC's kind of five year run leading up to this of having postseason play ins and stuff versus a Phoenix team that was making its first? playoff appearance in almost 10 years like do you think that that plays much into this in the second half I feel like like you say it kind of played out in the same script as the previous two matchups this season so I don't want to put too fine a point on well this just boils down to Philly's first time in the playoffs because I I still think like you say they didn't lose that game DC just probably played its best game of the season so far yeah yeah I but I think that that could also be attributed to the playoff experience and like knowing what it what it takes to win playoff games, even though DC hasn't won since 2017. But I, I especially look at those early O-line turnovers that DC had. It was on their second and third O-line. They looked weird. Yeah, they had turnovers and they were weird, like maybe not on red the zone, goal line. Yeah, close to not- the red zone. Not taking care of the disc, like it felt very odd to open a playoff game with those kind of turnovers. Yeah, and I think it it might be tough for a team that maybe has less playoff experience to 
just maintain a mental edge and be able to shrug off those early miscues and still be able to like finish out and really close out the game in the way that DC did. So I think playoff experience in terms of like overcoming adversity in that way. Also, like Rowan said in the Tuesday toss, it felt like Philly was winning that first half for a chunk of it, but really that didn't bother DC. DC never felt bothered and they really responded to any mistake that they may have made the point before. Well, and here's the thing about those early DC turnovers was that Philly didn't capitalize on either of them. They went 0 for 2 on those early break chances and it just felt I it at the time I wrote it down just because it felt very uh much like foreshadowing for DC's obvious late game closeout where here's this Phoenix team on the road. They're gifted a couple of early opportunities and I don't think they use a timeout in either opportunity either. They wanted their D line to work it down and preserve it for later. But man, if you have a chance to build any kind of padding against DC on the road, it feels like you got maybe take advantage of that, particularly because as we've talked about in the past for as good as this breeze team is at protecting a lead offensively, if they're asked to come back, that's a little bit harder of a task for DC because they don't necessarily love to rely on the long ball, right? So right, it, it's yeah. tough. And, and maybe that's a bit of coaching and experience in the playoffs too. Like maybe the, maybe they do call those timeouts. I don't know though on, because or at least it's, one. It's so hard though. You know, lead. fifty-fifty. It, you know, hindsight or whatever. Twenty-twenty yeah. hindsight. I should 2020. say fifty-fifty. <laughs> what the hell? Twenty-twenty hindsight. You know, like at the same time in the live environment, I was watching them and thinking, "No, this is the right idea." Yeah, 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 right. You don't have that confidence at the time. I mean, conversely, I remember there was an opportunity later in the game where DC had a chance at a break, and Luke Rafus made that huge layout uh, save attempt at the beginning of the third quarter. I think it was. And oh, then yeah, yeah. that was nice. And then DC called a timeout, and David Cranston just started waving around with the disc he was so frustrated at daryl stanley for i love calling how, off the D-line. how upset d-line guys get every time there's a oh it's it's honestly been one of my more favorite parts about this season because a lot of them know it's coming you you can feel it that it's playing yeah, out yeah. in the back of their heads they're like don't look shaky with the disc. Don't do something. <laughs> don't that... let the stall get to five or yeah, four even. Like, yeah. Anytime it's raising a little bit too much, the coach is going to pull the trigger. That flag and that whistle comes in and then just like a borderline tantrum starts. I love it so much. It's so it's great. great. I, I just love it because it, it shows that like D line intensity, right? Like they just want, yeah. They, oh, they want to be out opportunity. there. Yes. It's, there's the takeoff the table like you just rob them of it it's great but um, i i will say back to the 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 non-timeout calls early on do you think without getting too far ahead of ourselves with dc and new york if either of those teams turns it over like assuming it's not on their own half of the field if they turn it over in the first quarter if one of the o-lines does do you think the other team will use a timeout to get their o-line on the field yeah, because I think it I could think be one of those too. games where there might be less than 20 combined turnovers. I think this <laughs> right, might right, look right. a lot like the 2021 AUDL championship game between the Flyers and the Empire, where both teams coming in know how efficient each other's offenses are, and any kind of spare opportunities are going to be presented are going to be seized with a plum, right? Like, you're not going to want to... Like, I... What? 
What do you think the over-under is on combined break opportunities for both teams? 11? Uh, maybe a little more than that. Like yeah? 15, 13 to if 15. If it's good weather, I don't know. I could see both offenses just kind of trading for a while in the first half. Like I think it yeah, might take I mean, a little 11, bit for... If it was 11, that would probably be like a 70 to 75% conversion rate for both sides which yeah that's i guess that's about what i would expect for these teams honestly full strength dc versus new york i feel like the the week one of 2021 was similar to that where both teams had close to 10 turnovers a piece or something maybe more like yeah i think no i think dc had 10 and new york had like eight or nine or something and that was the difference i mean the the championship game last year i think new york had 10 carolina had seven maybe so razor thin margins famously allowing two break opportunities to new york in a championship game <laughs> good yeah, luck that's, that's hard <laughs> to do but no i i could just see a similar kind of narrative playing out with dc and new york and i'm really excited for us to get this matchup in the playoffs again because despite this rivalry building over the last you know, couple of years, they haven't met in the playoffs since 2018 in the famously torrential downpour first round uh, East Division matchup where there were no scores in the fourth quarter because the conditions were so wet and windy. Empire preserving a road win over the then favored Breeze uh, and moving on to the East Division championship game where they beat Toronto for the first time ever in New York franchise history. Like it's crazy how kind of recently this new era of East division matchups has taken place, right? Like this is very recent that empire and breeze have kind of taken this sort of center stage. And I think this playoff matchup in particular will really enshrine what this rivalry is kind of about, right? Like for sure. Won both matchups so far this year. It, it, bears out in a general cosmic sports logic way that DC is sort of due at this point because of how good they are, how efficient both of their lines are. And yet empire just still feel like the favorites in basically every matchup from here going forward. Do you, do I'm you excited think... for, Oh, I was just going to say it's, it's the most recent MVPs facing off in a playoff game and perhaps even the MVP of this year sprinkled in if Oscar is to win it. But Yacht and Rowan, I, I feel like those are just two playoff performers generally. I'm just thinking back to Yacht's game against Atlanta last year and really throughout his career, he's scored, I think, like 70 or 80 career times in the playoffs with assists and goals combined, something ridiculous. Um, so there's a lot of like individual narratives at play too, which I'm excited about. I will say Rowan does put up a lot of scores in playoff games, but he's also averaging close to four throwaways in each of his last four playoff starts. So something is to it really just, four? Yes. I mean, yeah. I know he had four against Philly in his last. He game. has four in three of his last four and three throwaways in 2019 uh, against then mm. Toronto in the opening round of the East Division playoffs. So yeah, it's uh, he definitely gets scores. He had 12 scores in that game. Uh, but <laughs> that was back three, in, yeah. three throwaways and a drop, four, four turnovers in a playoff game as an individual is tough. And you could even see that on Saturday night against Philly last weekend, you know, and he, Rowan talked about that in the Tuesday toss that 
Paul Owens got to him and he was forced into making more mistakes than he's made all season. That was a season high for throwaways against Philly in the opening round for Rowan. Yeah. Yeah, that probably won't fly against New York, is my guess. No. I don't know. Do you think no. anyone would have more than like two throwaways in that game? I think if they do, that team will lose. I think that's the kind <laughs> of margin we're talking about here. I don't think that no, I think you're right. either New York or DC can bear that kind of individual turnover margin, right? Yeah. Now we'll need a, a career playoff efficiency day from Rowan, though, apparently. Which should be doable for him. He's He's got the bar a it little bit be. lower than yes. I think his performances would otherwise <laughs> indicate. So right. it should definitely be doable. But let's move on now to the Central Division. And again, Minnesota prevailing at home 20-18 to 18 against Indianapolis. Minnesota pushing their lead to three and four goals a couple of times. But the Alley Cats always clawing their way back as they've done all season long. It's felt like, although finally... The Alley Cats' historically great defensive line conversion kind of fell apart on the road. Just three came back of, down to earth. Just three of nine. Uh, I would say easily their worst performance. You know, they were one of seven in that road loss by 15 goals at the beginning of June in Minnesota. But that was such a uh, a light travel roster that I don't really count that game a whole bunch. This three of nine performance. In the opening round of the playoffs, I think, was probably, you know, on the lower end for this Alley Cats D-line that has been so, so good all season. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, not to say they were due for some regression necessarily, but it did always feel a bit like they were punching I mean, above their weight. They were at seven. They were almost at seventy percent, as I've wrote, written about. <laughs> but a they were. But times. they did it. But they did it over the course of an entire. Season. I know. Like it, they it, they like, showed that it wasn't fluky. But I. Just it was think, not I mean, fluky, but it still is a remarkable twelve-game accomplishment to be almost at the same level as the historically great New York offensive line from this season. You know, we right. talked about it a few times. It just bears repeating that. Indy was converting at a just unfathomable rate on D-line opportunities. Yeah, and honestly, you you look at the numbers and you think if they were just a little bit more efficient on those D-line conversion opportunities, they could have won this game. Because the O-line was very much keeping pace with Minnesota throughout the entire game. I mean, early on, Minnesota's O-line looked unstoppable, but like the way Indy was able to hang around was that Minnesota just would make some weird mistakes from time to time and just allow Indy to get right back in it. Minnesota, without the presences of Jimmy Kittleson and Colin Berry on the back end and Sam Ward in their handler sets and Rocco Linehan, too, as a matchup defender, their defense has gotten just a little bit thinner and a team as as a unit and on a string as the Indy offense is, they're just going to find ways to exploit some matchup somewhere. And you could just see Indy's offense figuring that out throughout the night, right? Like Keegan North was basically in rhythm all game. Levi Jacobs had a good game. Jeremy Keish was doing a great job as a Phil Cutter downfield. Cameron Brock, of course, got his just kind of endlessly filling up five goal stat lines. It seems like from here to eternity, Um, (laughs) you, you know, it's, it's, it's another punch card performance, I think for this kind of work pale mentality in the offense where, you, you can never really say they're like a truly elite unit. And yet at the same time, 
it's hard to think of maybe eight offenses that are truly better than them. It's at just converting possessions, especially when you need it, especially if you're, you're down three goals and you just need a hold. Like Indy's offense is one of the most reliable, I feel like, in kind of tough pressure cooker, aware of the moment situations. Yeah, you think it's like one of the most reliable in the league? I, I don't think in like a general sense, again, like I do think that they lack a certain amount of efficiency and just playmaking this year, especially down a couple of starters and Travis Carpenter and Trey Dines. And yet at the same time, as you see against Minnesota, if you don't play them hard every single possession, they're just going to run down the field and convert. You know, like they're not really prone to making too many mistakes on their own. They can at times, obviously. They did against Minnesota. There were a couple just flat-out throwaways, especially later in the game. They let a few things get away from them near their own end zone, and Minnesota was able to quickly convert some break opportunities. But generally speaking, I feel like Indy's offense is one of the better units at taking what is given to them. And I think that that, that speaks something to that unit. You know, like why they only lost by two goals and completely covered the, the four-goal spread heading into this yeah. game. Right. No, it, it, it has definitely been an O-line that I've been like pleasantly surprised by throughout the season. I think I've I've gone through phases of like just not trusting them in big game moments or, or road environments like this. But the fact that they were able to nearly match Minnesota's offensive efficiency with, you know, I, I think of Minnesota and Chicago as like pretty clear cut the two best offenses in the division. So for Indy to be right up there, and again, this is, with the injuries they suffered earlier this year. Yeah, I think their their outlook for next year is definitely uh, good. Yeah, they were only two percentage points behind Minnesota's offense on Saturday night. Uh, they, Indy was 15-25, Winchell were 13-21, Winchell 62%, Indy 60%. So Indy hanging that, right there. That's, and like, that's like playoff level efficiency. I feel like you're looking for that 60 plus percent mark. Yes. Generally throughout these games. Yes. And what hurt Indy, I think the most was the 11 of 14 on red zone opportunities, along with their less than average uh, D-line conversion rate, just missing on a few goal line opportunities for the Alley Cats really wound them in a two goal loss. You know, like you just can't have those kind of mistakes and this kind of road matchup, even if you're only committing yeah. 15 turnovers as a team for the whole game. Three of them, I don't think, can be in the red zone like that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, like we said with DC and Philly, like the, the margins in the playoffs are just like that much more thin when it comes down to it. And Minnesota, 11 turnovers as a team, that was actually their lowest mark of the season. That was that was their most efficient game they've played in all of 2022. So similar to DC, like that. Now is the time to have those games, which just bodes well for their chances against Chicago this Sunday. Yeah, and I think what starts for Minnesota's success is that backfield combination of Josh Klain and Andrew Roy and spelled in with Tony Paletto kind of now being freed up a little bit more as a mobile passer and being able to take, I think, a few more shots, whereas Klain and Roy are just, when they don't make mistakes, it feels like nothing can really get to them. If they're not, you know, throwing the disc away or maybe taking a few looks that they shouldn't, Roy and Klain is about as reliable as a backfield duo as it gets. And Roy was just tearing Indy apart with pivot throws, just break throws around all day. Yeah. 
It's like it's Mark the same Stone thing, exists. Same thing as it. last game where he threw like 700 yards or whatever. I mean, he didn't have that many yards this game, but yeah, he, he is just having his way with this indie defense. And it's amazing. Like we talked about sort of this, this transition of Minnesota, or I guess more of like finding their identity as like a more possession-based offense that doesn't need to necessarily stretch the field with continuation shots that might be forced, like just working the offense patiently through Roy, through Paletto, through Clayton. They only attempted six hucks in this game. They were four of six. And I think they've really bought into this approach of really limiting turnovers and just letting their throwers work. Clayton is doing an exceptional job of picking his spots because he did have a couple of release valve hucks downfield, getting them going into transition and getting a couple of easy scores, I think, with the indie defense scrambling because for as maybe uh, average or below average even as the indie defense is at getting takeaways, when they get a chance to set up, they're a pretty good disciplined unit and they can just force turnovers, I think, a lot of times out of opponents. And you could see with Minnesota's throwing attack, there just wasn't any real worry the entire game from their offense. They kind of knew if they weren't, you know, making mistakes themselves, they were going to convert that possession. And you could especially feel that, I think, in the second half, even as Indy made its runs at various times, the windchill offense just kind of had that that confidence that you knew is going to make them persevere at home. What do you think of Bivon's usage in the game? Started off on defense, ultimately transitioned to offense, but I think he was probably flip-flopping throughout the game, which is what he's done a lot this season. But he's also had games where he's been like, much more primarily on offense or on defense. Do you feel like that flexibility and just kind of like playing things as they go works in Minnesota's favor? Or do you feel like it'd be better if he was just on a set line? I think against Indy, it's good. I worry about it against a Chicago team where he's going to be matching up against some of the best playmakers in the league as a whole, where if they're going to be asking him to run on defense, it's probably going to be matching up with uh, Jeff Weiss, uh, Paul Arters, uh, Joe White, uh, Pavel Giannis, you know, and he's going to be working on D-line. Whereas I feel like he had a couple of more favorable matchups against Indy. Just historically, I think Bivon has played very, very well against the Alley Cats, whereas he plays really well against Chicago. There's just a little bit more of an ask given the size and just established roles of the Union's playmakers, right? And so I... I'm worried that they're going to redline Bivon a little bit in the Central Division matchup and maybe ask a little too much of him going back and forth. Like, I do agree. I think Mm. a little bit more structure might benefit him as opposed to just asking him to do everything all the time, which he excels at. Like, he was great in this matchup. He had four assists, two goals, 17 of 18 on throws, 262 total yards. He was great in isolation sets in the red zone and just super effective with the disc. He, he had that one goal where he got an isolation goal and then ran up the sideline, just exploding with oh, the fans, like fired up. He yeah. never shows emotion like that. And talking with a couple of Minnesota players, they were emphatic about how much that charged up the team. Like you talk about a team leader and someone who can really rally an at- a squad when he makes plays. I don't know if there's a more singular talisman for their team than Bivon going deeper into these playoffs. And so I worry that if they're asking him to do everything all the time for four quarters, if they need that kind of late game playmaking as they did last year in that central division championship game, 
he might be a little gassed. And I feel like that's kind of what happened last year too, where he was made the snake in the grass play. He made a sky (laughs) goal early in the game. He was kind of doing his thing. And then later in the game, it was like either through Chicago's adjustments or just some late game fatigue, he wasn't quite as available. And I feel like Minnesota will need him. will need Roy. will need Klain. will need Jurek late in this game against Chicago. And I think specializing in roles a little bit might be the most beneficial for Minnesota, who has been, I think, really great at adjusting, trying different lineups, bending guys kind of both ways, you know, with Coffin now being a D-line starter in their primary puller, Bivon spelling both ways, Andrew Roy sometimes playing on defense, Jerick sometimes playing on defense. You've seen a lot of experimentation with Minnesota, but I think right yeah. now, again, structure might benefit them. And you've heard that, I think, from other people too, where, it, you know, media and coaches alike, where it, it's all fun and games to kind of experiment throughout the regular season. But now in the playoffs, you kind of need to lock in some of your lineups. And unless you have a really specific matchup that you're looking to take away on defense with one of your O-line starters, you're just going to start kind of, you know, taking gas from one supply and feeding it into another. You know, you're not yeah. really adding anything to the system, asking Bivon to play both ways all the time, I think. I think it's great in the regular season. In the postseason, it's just, it's so much. Yeah, I right. I'm kind of thinking back to Eric Taylor last year as like the prime example of that He's two-way player. And right. they, like ultimately down the stretch, they were just like, okay, you're D-line now. Like, we don't care how good you are offensively. You could play both ways, but you're just like, this is going to be your role. Uh, and you talk about a, a puller too. Like he he brought a lot to that D line, and they figured out how to maximize his impact, even with how good of an offensive player he is. With Bevon, he's kind of killed Chicago offensively the past two games. He had three assists and four goals in their last meeting, three assists and six goals in their meeting before that, which is when Minnesota won in Chicago. Both those games, he played more than twenty O points to just five D points. I, I I really like the fit of him on offense. I think the balance of him and Roy and Klain and Paletto, like these are all guys that I guess not all, but you know, they have the ability to stretch the field when they need to, like with I guess Bevon and Klain specifically and even Paletto. But they're all guys that are I, I guess generally take good care of the disc, at least when they're in this more possession based approach. And I think Bevon is just a really solid go-to facilitating cutter like he is gonna be the guy that will get open on that first cut initiate the offense off of Andrew Roy and you know get other guys like Jurek and Snyder involved downfield so I I like him a lot where he fits within this offense so in my mind I, I think that's where I would slot him in when I think when they kind of play the small ball and, you know, Jurek has actually been playing more of the small ball and using his big frame right. kind of in backfield sets and really working tiny spaces by shielding out defenders. I think that when you put Bivon on offense, you can kind of allow Jurek to float into the backfield more and still preserve a lot of attacking power from kind of your continuation throwing sets by having Bivon range a little bit because Bivon is definitely not somebody who anchors in the backfield, I think, as well as Jerk does. And so I think you just get a little bit more of that diversified attack, like you're saying, when you put Bivon yeah, on offense for the wind chill. But it's right. still just like, 
you watch him match up on defense though and it's like man you want his his agility and coverage. <laughs> for sure and for especially sure. But i don't know this chicago game though like both these offenses really have their way with the opposing defense like i don't know how much yeah. any minnesota can any minnesota defender can really do to limit any of the several chicago offensive weapons yeah, and so I think you're right. You just kind of maybe stack and put more firepower onto that O-line in hopes that yeah, these eventual shootouts well. between Chicago and Minnesota somehow tipping your favor. Because, yeah, yeah, you're not... I think that's got to be what it is. And I think especially given Minnesota's defensive starter absences, they, they can't really expect to limit this Chicago offensive attack. Like, it's just... It's too powerful. It's too able now to both go deep and play through possession-based sets with Rutledge and Giannis and whoever else wants to cycle in with them. You know, you. Yeah. I don't think you can really ask a defense maybe other than a New York or a Carolina to hold Chicago to less than 20 goals right now. Like, I think with the way that the Union are performing offensively, unless you just slow everything down and make it a different game, they're just way too explosive and way too balanced this year. Yeah, I mean, without obviously, we'll get more into this with our playoff preview later this week. But Chicago right now averaging over 24 scores a game, 24.3. That's fourth most in the league. Winchill are just behind them, sixth most in the league at averaging 23.3 scores per game. So yeah, I think that's that's what this game is going to look like most likely. So if, if I were Minnesota, I would just like try to lean into that O-line and make it as efficient as possible. And I think you do that with Bivon. Well, the scoring is close because of the wind chills uh, efficiency in converting breaks, but their offenses are actually pretty disparate in seasonal efficiencies. Union at 65%, wind chill at 55%. So, well, but look at their their last two games, though. I mean, no, I, I know. They, I, I'm they've say, both I'm, been over 60% efficient I, when they play I each totally, other. I totally think that the Winchell offense at its peak form has the ability to punch with uh, Chicago. Yeah, I, I'm not doubting that them. at all. I'm just speaking to seasonal averages. There is, again, consistency issues with this Minnesota team. Obviously, that gets solved sure, when sure. they get these top-line rotations where they essentially go eight deep on offense when they include Bivon, and it's Andrew Roy, Tony Paletto, Jurek, Marty Adams, Will Brandt, uh, Josh Klain, Brian Venuka, and Quinn Snyder, which is as good of an eight-man rotation as you can kind of get in this league. So I'm not trying to, you know, impugn Minnesota. I'm just saying <laughs> Chicago, for all of their, you know, we love the long ball bucket getting philosophy, they are still the second most efficient offensive unit in the yeah. league this season and are more efficient than last year's record-setting team. Well, and, and they've been doing it all season. Like, I think Minnesota only more recently has been having those 60-plus percent yes. offensive efficiency games, but Chicago has been... They, they just have the proven track record at this point. They are the reigning Central Division champions, and the Central Division Championship in 2022 will take place this Sunday. We will preview that again on this Thursday, but before we get to all that, let's get to the final opening round West Division matchup between San Diego and Salt Lake. Shred closing out their season sweep of the two-time reigning division champion Growlers, winning 19-16 at home. Not a pretty win for Salt Lake, 
for Salt Lake, excuse me, but it doesn't matter at all. They get a huge defensive performance. Their matchup defense, one through seven, was just phenomenal all night, all night long. Again, generating 17 takeaways. What is it? Their, their third game in the top 10 team blocks this season, I think. I saw the Shred tweet out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the basically the top 10 single-game block performances right. for teams. Three Salt of, Lake has three of those. Right. Now. And this would be the third one. There was a ton of variable wind in this game that wreaked havoc on both teams. The Shred having, I think, two different five-goal leads that San Diego then whittled down to a single goal, uh, mm-hmm. once in the first half and once in the second half, because... Neither O-line could really prevail much in the wind, and it just led to a lot of fast-break defensive opportunities for both teams. But again, Salt Lake getting the big win at home at a new venue didn't matter. The home crowd was still fantastic, once again, from the shred heads. And again, it was a big first quarter kind of almost blowout from the beginning. Obviously, Growlers had their moments where they made these runs. It was a game of runs. It was a very rubber bandy game. But Shred had the momentum basically after the second point of the game. Growlers got out to two quick goals. First point of the game, the Growlers scored in, what, 23 seconds with a yeah, long a hug from Travis Dunn to Goose. It just looked yeah. like, oh, here comes Beautiful. San Diego in the playoff opening round again. Like, here comes their yeah, offense. Just, just, just like we thought. Shots. Yeah, it was going to be the same thing as last year against Dallas. but And no. that was almost it. Because then they went <laughs> 4 of 12 on their next uh, hawking opportunities throughout the game. The Growlers did. They committed 28 turnovers. Their second highest of the season, only trailing the last time they played at Salt Lake. <laughs> Uh, Shred just kind of... It's amazing. You know, they owned the Growlers this season in individual matchups, especially on the defensive side of the disc. Uh, With Joel Clutton and Ben Green starting in this Shred defensive lineup, they're imposing. Like, they take the disc away from you. These aren't, you know, system-generated turnovers or anything. They're just winning discs in space. Any kind of underthrow in space that a shred defender can attack on kind of like a vertical route. It's theirs right now. Like Ben green was bothering goose all night long. Like Clutton was getting yeah. to done. Like they were disrupting people. Uh, Brandon Jordan played great defense on Paul Lally. Ben Ashton made a nice play. You know, they just kind of had, they have an army all over the place. Kyle Weinberg leads the team in blocks this year. He's been playing fantastic for them all season. They just have, have that dog in them right now on yeah defense. De- Devin Terry Chad Jorgensen it's it's an yeah. army of guys they're all they're, they're all big. pressuring like every they're single big. throw yeah they're and they move really team. well yeah they're, they're big and quick which is a good recipe for success at this level yeah well, I I think we both we both gave San Diego a little bit too much credit in their recent offensive success and maybe we just overlooked a bit of the Salt Lake defense I mean I still think I, I just did not expect San Diego to play this inefficiently. Even in windy conditions like this, you just assume the elite teams can handle the wind better than some other teams. So I did not foresee 50-plus turnovers in this game. But I, I do want to give a lot of credit to the Salt Lake defense because like, they are the reason why San Diego looked as bad as they did. 
Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, San Diego had to start adjusting throws because they were obviously thinking about how the Salt Lake defenders were going to pursue the discs in space. Shred were just winning discs for the last three quarters of the game. Yeah. I, yeah, it was, it was surprising. But then like once it was happening, I was like, okay, I guess, I guess this makes sense. I guess this is just how these teams match up. And I guess San Diego, like, continuing to try those deep puck opportunities. Maybe they were just trying to like avoid a lot of that underneath pressure that Salt Lake just constantly throws at you. And that, that was just not in San Diego's comfort zone, especially in a tough wins, like five of 13 hucks below 40% is not good. They were 29% converting their offensive possessions really just never looked in rhythm. Like you said, outside of that first point. One as ugly as it was for Salt Lake, they were, in a sense, very effective in their deep game. And I think that they very Mm -hmm. much understood, hey, we're going to go win these. Like, even if we don't necessarily connect, we get to play a field possession game and get to go make plays in space. And right now, we're able to win our matchups against this Growlers team. And I don't know, I guess I, I... you know, we both picked San Diego, and in a sense, I'm a little shocked that this is the result, but at the same time... Salt Lake has now defeated the Growlers three straight times, and in each matchup, <laughs> yeah, this is what they this is what they've done. They've outran them in the open field, and I think that that's the identity of this young shred team is they will make you run. You know, they're 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 going to make mistakes. That has also A been part of, of their identity the back yeah. half of this season, and I'm oh, definitely yeah. worried about them against the Summit team <laughs> that is likely to return Jay Frude and Alex Atkins to their starting rotations. But man, the shred are fun to watch. Like there's just it they was it was it was also very fun to see a home crowd as energetic as Salt Lakes experience their first playoff fourth quarter with a lead. Because as the shred broadcast pointed out at one time, you could just feel the tension from the Salt Lake fans as the Growlers started to inch back. I think at one point. <laughs> The Growlers yeah. went on a 4-1 run to begin that fourth quarter and it narrowed the gap from like six goals or five goals. It was like 17-11, 16-11. It was, it was 17, well, it was 17-12 to open the quarter. Okay. And then San Diego brought it to within 18-16. Right. So yeah, that's a 4-1 a four run. Yeah, which just... is, I definitely, I, I think the crowd was feeling that possibility of San Diego coming all the way back. As a person who has endured many playoff losses at Breeze Stevens Field (laughs) over the years, it just reminded me so much of that kind of pitching that almost like orchestra conducting, like the players would make even even like a a kind of simple play in the fourth quarter that resulted in a conversion for the shred would just lead to this eruption from the stands. And I just I love that so much for a new franchise that they kind of get that that real bite, that really juicy quality in that first season. And hey, (laughs) the West Division Championship game is two expansion teams this year. You know, for as much as we didn't know about this this division going into the season, adding three new teams, two of them have emerged as the top of the class. It's it's great. I, I like it. It's a new era West Division, and these teams are they're all fun to watch, and especially their matchups with San Diego have all been fun to watch too. So I, I think we've had I guess we've only had one really good game between Salt Lake and Colorado the first time they met. 
second game, Colorado just sort of took that game and ran with it. Salt Lake was able to put together a fourth quarter run and made the game a little bit closer than it should have been otherwise. But I still think Salt Lake has this quality to them that, like you said, it's not it's not always the prettiest. They do make their fair share of mistakes, but they're fun. They're momentum-driven. And I feel like this has been the case of a lot of their games where it will be a game of runs. And it's just, you know, you don't know who's going to, which team is going to have more of those runs and which team's runs are going to be longer than the others. But I think Salt Lake is as capable as any of these other playoff teams at really like opening a game up with defensive playmaking in particular. All right, now to be the killjoy. Watching this game in comparison to the other divisions playoff games and knowing how the West Division has played at recent championship weekends, you know, we, we've talked about before, I think three of the first five seasons of this division's existence, they won AUDL titles, specifically in the Bay Area with then San Jose and San Francisco winning three out of five, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from 2014 through 2017. Um and then since then, this division has not won a game at championship weekend. Um, with the turnovers and relative inefficiency so far representing the West in this first round matchup, and just knowing that it's now two expansion teams, you worry about them against the other three divisional field going into potential championship weekend matchups for either Salt Lake or Colorado. Because I think that I I picked them in the AUDL weekly segment we just recorded today, but I do think that the Strat have a pretty good opportunity to upset the Summit just because of their high variability playmaking and their ability to match up mm-hmm. well defensively with a Colorado team that will take its shots downfield. Um, but should either of these teams prevail, how do you think that they stack up against, you know, a DC team that just turned it over eight times, a Carolina team that is going on two of the most efficient seasons ever in this league's history, uh, Empire team that could be the greatest of all time, a Chicago team that is now building its own kind of, you know, the, the beginnings of a dynasty in the Central Division. You know, like how do these first-year teams kind of, steal themselves going into this now deeper portion of the postseason. I, to me, this game between San Diego and Salt Lake was more so a a testament of how far above these other two I perceive Colorado right now. I think Colorado is easily the most clear-cut one seed of all the divisions right now. I mean, I, I get what you're saying about Salt Lake having a chance of pulling off the upset, but I think in terms of pure efficiency and just what we've seen from a consistency standpoint of these teams this season, like Colorado hasn't had 20 plus turnovers in a game since that first game where they hosted Salt Lake. That was at the end of May. That was their third game of the season. They've had under 20 turnovers every single game since then, including eight in their last game against Portland. So I do think Colorado has it in them to compete with these other teams at championship weekend. I do not at all think Salt Lake has it in them to compete with the other teams at championship weekend. I think those te- those games would be uh, pretty significantly one-sided. But I think Colorado, I still view them as a top five team in the league. 
Yeah, I think with Fruit and Atkins set to start, they definitely become yeah, a top five team in that offense. Has that seven pronged attack when they have all these starters available. I was just watching uh, some earlier season footage when they had both of them starting, and it's just it's frightening it's how they can spread the backfield basically sideline to sideline with three throwers. They'll have Jackson as kind of a pivot, let another cut range a bit, and then cycle in either Atkins or Frude into that third well, space, and those or even guys, Finer. Those guys, I don't even think they all played with, maybe they had like a couple games where, where Landisman was active too, but like he's obviously a, have be, has become even more of a handler this year after historically being a, a very go-to downfield cutter uh, for the Aviators. So, like, all these guys have really nice hybrid skill sets and are able to rotate in and out of the backfield alongside another cut. Like, I, I don't know. How many games were they at, like, absolute full strength for their own think Maybe their last two. game against Salt Lake. Their Did last game against guys? San Diego was the one I was watching today, and they had their full strength lineup, and it was terrifying because the Growlers, who are good at trapping out of dead this scenarios, like, on a sideline, they would try to take away some kind of throwing angle from Nethercut picking up. But, of course, that leaves someone else open somewhere else on the field. And the Summit were finding that open player within two throws most of the time and then just exploiting whatever mismatch they had elsewhere downfield. Because if someone would rush to essentially cover that open player, then there would be another mismatch as the double team scrambled to get into position like, the summit were just punishing San Diego basically any time they would run doubles because they're just able to so quickly find wherever opportunity is that they have the open person. Yeah, they. I am looking back to their last game against Salt Lake. They did have that that whole crew active, and yeah, at the end of the third quarter, they were up twenty to eleven. They were a highlight game. parade too. <laughs> Atkins is going off. Finer was going off. Frude was going off. He had that sky deep over Clutton that kind of, yeah, yeah, almost clinched the game at a certain point. And it was like midway through the second. Or third <laughs> it was. Quarter. It was early. He it was well, early, but it's just down it's with one of those statement plays. He was know? pounding his chest, running to the sideline, and body bumping anyone within the, you know, surrounding zip codes. Like he, when Frude makes plays like that for your team, you get a championship kind of pedigree. Like that's why he signed with this team right like and it it, going back and watching Colorado from earlier in the season it was just a reminder of like when they have another cut and fruit too they're not really an expansion team anymore you know like that's that's just a really good contender at that point yeah and I I'm still just I'm still impressed with just like how quickly all these guys learn to play so well together like it's hard when you have this many different uh, you know, playmakers and different skill sets within the same offense. But I feel like Colorado has really had their system figured out for a while now. Do you think Salt Lake has a chance? Like we just saw one of the questions that I think I had personally was who can kind of be the third player on offense to step up consistently alongside Joe Merrill and Jordan Kerr. And this last game didn't really necessarily answer that question. Sean Canole played well at times, obviously for the shred backfield, but there's still some times where he's a little too prone to mistakes. He's under 92% completion rating for the season. That's a little low for a pivot central handler. And it just Mm -hmm. feels like shredder still kind of relying on a win by committee approach. And I worry about 
that against a Colorado team that has enough 1v1 defenders to shut that down. And while Shred played really well offensively in the first matchup at Colorado this season, you could see by that second matchup, Summit had game planned a little bit, figured out who they wanted to kind of take off the board or force a little bit too much into Kerr's hands, and the Shred offense kind of came unglued. Well, and that was that was the only game that that was the only bad game Jordan Kerr had all season is when they matched up with Colorado. So I, I am curious to see like you know if Salt Lake can make any adjustments to maybe free up Kerr a little bit more because I think he only touched the disc like fifteen times in that game. Yeah, fifteen completions. He finished minus one with three assists and three throwaways. So I really the the limiting of Jordan Kerr still seems like the central. Uh, concept for any defense to key in on and the fact that Colorado has done that once already it it makes me feel like they're going to be well prepared again you just compare their offenses though like even even like a fully efficient in rhythm Kerr I just don't know if they have the pieces that can really compete with Colorado's efficiency like Kerr can't touch every disc that we've talked about his his sweet spot isn't touching the disc 30 40 times a game so when you have to involve those other players, I just I think Colorado just has them beat and in terms of offense and also defensively. Like as good as Salt Lake is at getting takeaways, they are not efficient with their break opportunities. No. no. I forget exactly <laughs> where they rank this year, but they are very, very much uh, just sort of throwing the disc wherever, often looking deep off those turnovers. I, they're a big play team and I I appreciate that that's their identity, but you just compare it to any defense that can like methodically take their time and work it up the field. Like Colorado has shown they can do at times, even without like a true D line quarterback, but they have enough guys that just like understand that they still need to take care of the disc. And Salt Lake on the other hand is just a lot more uh, free with it. So I really in both offensively and defensively, I, I favor Colorado pretty heavily. Shredder 11th in defensive efficiency, despite being first in takeaways per game. Uh, they mm. are almost at 13 blocks per game and just under 47% in their D-line conversion rate. So, yeah. It's frustrating because it, I feel like I feel like if their mentality just changed, if they just got a little bit more focused on limited you're turnovers, asking they could a be a lot to, better. You're asking a bull to change who it is, Daniel. You, you can't ask. You can't <laughs> tame this kind of wild nah, stallion energy on never the change, line. Never change Salt Lake. We, we need, like D-lines like that. They're you fun. need Jorgesen, Chad Jorgensen and Joel Clutton and Weinberg and everyone just heave hoeing downfield as soon as hey, they get a fast break. If like. they're completing more than 85% of their throws, they're doing something wrong. They're not taking enough shots. It's <laughs> probably what they're being told. <laughs> it is just fun to watch them get out in fast break opportunities because you really don't know it what is. the continuation throw is going to be from the shred D-line. Like Anyone is willing no. to pull the trigger in that scenario. Like There really is no red lights for them when they're in transition. Everyone just can take that opportunity downfield. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's a fun style. I just don't know how well-suited for playoffs it is in particular. Yeah, especially against a Colorado team that, again, isn't going to probably gift them many opportunities. I expect the the kind of handling core of Maddie Jackson, Nethercut, and Jay Fruit to really lock down on possessions a lot. Maddie Jackson, I think has to be one of the most uh, 
untalked about parts of Colorado's success this season. He started, if not every game, almost every game as Nethercut and Landisman and Frude have kind of cycled around him in the Colorado backfield on offense. He's felt like a pretty consistent part all season. And it's just mm-hmm. so good, I think, at those pacer, really quick decision hockey assist style throws where he's always setting up the action. You go back and you look at so many of those out of dead to scenarios where Colorado just crushes defenses. Jackson is a lot of times that first release throw because he's so good at getting open. And then he's so good at making that immediate decision that this offense thrives on. He's also made some like splashy plays in the clutch too. Like he's still very much a a central piece of this offense at times. Like all these guys have had their, time in the spotlight this season. But I, I agree, we probably don't talk about him enough, but uh, yeah, his his role has definitely been critical. Jackson is an athlete, man. Like even back on that 2016 Dallas team, he kind of made the the squad for his athleticism and just his raw playmaking ability. I remember him even kind of being like this this cult icon in uh South Central or like where is he from? I think Arkansas is a school that he went to. And people that would just rave, rave yeah. about Maddie Jackson being this kind of diamond in the rough down there. And now it's, you know, he's kind of made the full transformation where he's such a clear team leader and one of the kind of quote unquote older guys on this Colorado team. Like you can just mm-hmm. see so many people really feed off of his endlessly positive energy on the field. Yeah, I I remember it was it was that first Salt Lake game that he, he I know he made several like great catches down the stretch. And he, he made a big with, sky. Yeah, he had like a two, real he had big two sky. assists, four goals, a block. It was plus six for that game, over three hundred yards of offense. Like he was very active, and I, I feel like just being reminded of that really from any of these Colorado guys that are all like able to have these big games periodically. I, I think that's just further testament to how difficult they are to stop. We'll get into it a little bit more on Thursday, but I just want to ask you right now, first blush opinion, what would it take Salt Lake to get into a game in Colorado? Like, does their defense need to come out again and just kind of own space in their 1v1 matchups? Does the shred offense just have to play its best game of the season and kind of stop the the weirdness that's been befuddling them the second half of the season like what what is sort of the magic bullet for the shred heading into this road game in the west division championship matchup uh, yeah i just i don't see them really keeping pace with colorado's offense I, I feel like their focal point just needs to be the the shred defense in limiting colorado and pressuring them in a similar way that they were able to pressure san diego which is Obviously, more easier said than done, but they have the athletes. I, I think they've shown, like, Clutton got the better of Fruit in several of those matchups. They, they've shown they can run with Colorado defensively. So I think if they if they have enough of those, like, big momentum plays on defense, and I, really what it's going to come down to is their D-line conversion rate. Like, they, they just need to take better care of the disc and really value each and every possession because... Again, in the playoffs, you just can't afford to, to not take advantage of those opportunities when you know the other team isn't going to turn the disc over that much. Like, of course, there's going to be maybe a couple nethercut huck throwaways. Like, like, you will have your chances, but I just think the 
the mindset does need to shift slightly for this playoff ultimate. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think they will discover that very quickly. If not, you know, like I, I think that Colorado right. might have one of their bigger home crowds of the season. They're a team mm-hmm. that not so quietly feeds really well off of its, you know, stadium energy and the big For play. Sure. So if the shreds start, you know, again, kind of having these rock fight starts to their games where they rely on playmaking and little else, it might be a long night at Peter Barton Stadium in Denver. I wonder what the line is going to be for this game. I really, I have no concept of like it, what what DraftKings perceives this at. Yeah, I think it's so dependent on if Fruit and Atkins are starting. You just see the offense taking a different shape, and you could see that in the at Salt Lake game where, yeah, Shred again. They had one of their best defensive starting lineups. Colton was in that game, you know, and they just could not figure out. Colorado's continuation attack and Atkins was killing them in the vertical game. He was the one that started that whole roof off celebration <laughs> bonanza right. that that basically oh, every second that. half score had from both teams where everyone's just trying to sky each other and tapping their heads. That was one of the more fun random energy games. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. It's like Colorado has such singular playmakers that they can change the entire tilt of a game. And, you know, for as fun as the shred we're having, they were getting trounced in that matchup. Yeah, they, they were, I, it's just, it's so tough. Like Colorado is just not going to gift them any turnovers. Like this Colorado offense is one of the best units in the league. And I just think the, the Salt Lake defense is going to need like their best game of the season, arguably in order to stop Colorado. Do you think any of the away teams have a legitimate shot? Or do you think it just kind of comes down to, as we've talked about earlier, a statistical probability happening where you just kind of feel like, well, <laughs> out of four Someone, matchups. Yeah, someone's due to win. Some, yeah. Someone is kind of due to win on the road. Or do you think it's just another top seed hold as it was this past weekend? I'm The more I think about it, the more I lean towards top seed hold especially with the way this season has been mostly that like these top four teams have been the top four teams for basically the entire season right like there hasn't really been much debate since early on maybe with Colorado and maybe a little bit with Chicago but generally like I I think we're all sort of wanting these four teams to meet a championship weekend and really duke it out and see who's the best and and see who can take down New York. But I mean, right now I I give Minnesota the best chance of these three teams or four teams, but I, I still maybe would put them at like a four, maybe 35 to 40% chance of winning like Chicago playing at home still, you know, with their top lineup that did just beat Minnesota a few weeks ago in Minnesota. uh, It's still going to be a tough task for any of these road teams for sure. Well, we will get into it more on Thursday's podcast as we preview the divisional championship round of the AUDL playoffs coming up on Saturday and Sunday this weekend. Again, thank you for tuning into this opening round of the playoffs recap episode of Swing Pass and for tuning in as always. I know I can speak on the behalf of Daniel. We just really appreciate all of your fandom here and any ways in which you engage with us. We love talking about ultimate Again, we will be back in just two days to preview the upcoming week of games. We'll talk to you then.
Bye now.